So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by Dan Englander, who is the CEO and founder of Sales Schema, a business development consultancy for marketing agencies, helping them increase deal flow and win ideal clients. He's also the host of the Digital Agency Growth Podcast and the author of Mastering Account Management and the B2B Sales Blueprint. So, Dan, it's great to have you on the show. Jonathan, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, I believe we're, you know, we're pretty close, both uh, based in New York. So it's nice to uh, have someone not too far away on the show. Yeah, as always. I feel like so many people left New York. It's uh, You got to hold on to as many New Yorkers as you can. That's true. That's true. So, Dan, why don't you kick us off with a unique approach, tip to other strategy that you think other consultants should consider that maybe they haven't come across yet? Yeah, I think the main thing is not going as wide as most people are inclined to in terms of like prospecting and sales outreach. So uh, if you want to sum it up, it's almost like staying local. That could either be literally local or, or local to, you know, the people that are closer to you in order to get business, right? Like, we heard for so long for so many people about how referrals were their, their their greatest source of business. And then we said, you know, we'd yell and scream and say, hey, that doesn't scale. It's reactive. And that's true. If you just sit around being reactive, it's reactive. But one of the most powerful things you can do is figure out like, okay, who do I know, actually know already that can help me? Or who are their friends of friends that can help me? And or, or who's literally like in my backyard? Like if I sent you an email and said, "Hey, Jonathan, I'm in Woodside, Queens. Sorry, I'm sorry, I'm getting your neighborhood wrong, and I have a consultancy. Uh, can you help me? Or I have this thing to sell you. Rather, that's going to be more compelling than a lot of other things that you can do. So, I think that's a big thing is like staying into your worlds, you know, uh, to to win new business. Yeah, I think it's a an easy trap to fall into when. You start thinking of, oh, okay, I've got to get new clients. I've got to go out and target lots of people that I've never spoken to before. Whereas oftentimes we just forget what's right in front of us, our our close circle and network who are there to support us. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's funny because like we started out as like a pretty conventional lead generation company, you know, a number of years ago. And we were doing things the way that everyone else tends to do them, which is like, automation, complete, just like scale over everything else, kind of numbers game stuff. And then we we had a client and that was like perfectly positioned. They, they were doing all the right things. They had a niche. They were focused on enterprise tech. And we tried every strategy under the sun from them uh, to, to get to get the meetings, you know, going after the, these companies and trying this funnel or that funnel and nothing worked. And after many versions of that, we sort of just like realized that something's broken with this approach. I'm sure that if you have something that is very, from the outside looking in, very novel or new, maybe the cold outreach thing works, but I think it's just declining because there's so much competition right at the top of the funnel for any given service. And also, you know, for all of our clients, we're selling significant deal sizes. It's a consultative sale, right? So I think for for consultants that are out there listening, that just just more scale and more just like volume isn't necessarily gonna gonna make things work. It's really more about finding some relative scale and some area where you're going to de-risk calls based on the commonalities that you already have with somebody, right? So that means that you, you might not need to be contacting thousands of people each week. Maybe you're contacting a few dozen people each week or something like that. That tends to work a lot better, I think. Nice. So if I was to kind of paraphrase 
So I've I've listened to you know some of the previous interviews that you've done, and you, you know you did did a great job of sort of explaining the process you walked through. But there was something I was curious about, and it's this process to you know help kind of de-risk those conversations, like you say. But initially, correct me if I'm wrong, if I get any of this wrong, but you basically go, okay, you've got your client, they're probably doing some kind of you know high ticket sales where the deal size is quite large, and you basically determine, okay, based on their ideal client persona. These are the, this is the list of targeted accounts, right? And then from that list of targeted accounts, you start looking at, okay, you know, whoever you're dealing with, you start looking at their first degree network and who within their first degree network would they be comfortable asking for uh, an introduction, right? And then from there, um, you're able to kind of go, okay, these, this is the subset of people that they're pretty, you know, familiar with and they're, they're happy talking to, and they've got a good relationship with. And, which of those people within that network are actually related to some of the people in those targeted accounts we're talking to. So obviously from that first initial phase, you determine the the bonds that are a bit stronger and you're able to leverage those. Once it gets to those those conversations that you have, how are you able to establish that those are going to be fruitful conversations? Because a lot of time people just add LinkedIn connections and I'm I'm just curious, like from that network that people reach out to and they have those conversations, what happens when it's like, oh, it looked as though, you know, that, that person that we reached out to, they had five contacts that were related to target accounts, but actually they're not really that friendly with those people at all. I'm curious how you circumnavigate that. Yeah, it's a good question. And and the fact is like this the numbers game thing doesn't go away. Like we still need to be working the numbers game. It's just the numbers change, right? So if we find out that somebody has a close friend and then that, that has a friend that knows uh or rather their close friend has like five connections in in five different accounts, the CMO of IBM, this CEO of whatever other company, this, that, and the third. It's probably worth talking to them and asking what the nature of those relationships are. You know, would you be open to introducing me? Chances are like one will work, but even if none work, that is still, I think, a better use of time than the way most people are doing networking, right? Where it's like, hey, let me go to this event and then so-and-so is going to introduce me to so-and-so that might have a need here. But guess what? You just talk to that person for five minutes, so they don't really know what you do. And then they, they make an intro to somebody that can't really help you. And then it's this like awkward encounter and it, you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. So I think that even if that, even if like you have that situation where they don't know anybody, that's still a better use of time than the alternatives. Right. Um, and all, the other thing I'll mention is that referral campaign is just one of the things we do. Um, I think the thing that the, the binding thread um, for all of our campaigns is really the philosophy of relationship sales at scale, which is that we're only contacting people that share a strong, meaningful commonality, which I think is different and better. And you can also do this on your own, even if you never hire us and think in this way, because it's, it's somewhat timeless, right? Like, we see a lot of this in sales where so how often have you gotten the email where somebody's like, I've learned all this stuff about you and I'm going to regurgitate it to you. Like, hey, Jonathan, you're in Queens. You run a podcast uh, focused consultancy. You know, you, you're you originally from from the UK or, or uh, you know, that, that neck across the pond. It's like, great, you know all this stuff, but there's nothing that, that binds me to you. But if I share those those commonalities, that becomes something that's harder to get mad at. I may or may not take the meaning, but it's at least something that I'm probably going to read and feel like I need to respond to, which is not going to go away. You know, I think that that's because it's um by its very nature scarce. 
So that's the the idea is that because of the internet, because of data mining, um, you actually can find out these things between people. It just takes the time to do it, and that's kind of how we're how we're thinking about it. Yeah, interesting. I often find you know university affiliations is a good one. Uh, you know, hey, you went to this university or that university. And in fact, I think sometimes it can pay off to actually just choose a university that not necessarily is like the most academically amazing university in the world, but the fact that a lot of, you know, it has like a global network, say, for example. Like that's something I've noticed about my wife went to university in, in say, London, UK, and that's how we met. And part of me is like, well, is London really a university experience? Like, it's not really a, a university campus experience, is there? But since she moved back to New York, I've noticed that there are so many, you know, King's College London networking event, and it's a really, really strong network. And it's like, oh, oh maybe that, maybe she wasn't to something. Maybe it maybe. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, um, this is something I, I've, I've written about in, in the book to shamelessly plug it, which is that, you know, we've, there's a lot of work, um, that's really great work done by the sociologist named Robin Dunbar, right? Uh, who's famous for the Dunbar's number, which is the idea that, you know, humans can maintain around 150 acquaintances, kind of people on a first name basis in their life, more or less. But our, my whole hypothesis is that, you know, well, first I should back up. Robin's the Dunbar's number kind of goes out by thirds. So starts out with like a small pool of people, like five close family members you can find in, 15 very close friends, and then onwards to Dunbar's number, which is like the number of loose, loose connections, so to speak. But I, I think that it keeps on going out by thirds to you know something in the low figures for the number of people that don't know you at all, but would be likely to talk to you based on one of a handful of personal commonalities that you have with them, right? Which is like King's College, like you mentioned, or location. Location is probably less compelling in New York City as it would be if we were in El Paso right now, right? But um, it could be meaningful. And there's there's a lot of other things like that, hobbies, et cetera. So our whole thing is like, why not start with that? When you're dealing with a skeptical buyer, somebody's not going to take a call lightly, why not spend the time to build a list that might be several as few as you know 100 people that share that commonality to open doors with them that that's kind of how that's how we're approaching uh campaigns for clients yeah yeah interesting uh, i'm curious as you go down the rabbit hole of figuring out you know better ways to you know maintain a network uh, and leverage that network like do you do you use a system at all personally uh to keep track of like who you meet and who you need to follow up with. I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. So our clients use all sorts of different systems, but for, for me personally, um, I use streak, which is a CRM. It's got pros and cons. I like it because it lives in Gmail and it's a, basically a very fancy souped up spreadsheet is the, the best way to describe it. Um, but from, from a network is a little bit different. Um, you know, if you're thinking of it as broader than sales, but I think from a sales perspective, basically, um, what we do is for myself and then for our, our salesperson or, and, and, and other people we've had in the past, we focus on working from bottom to top of pipeline, right? So the cognitive energy, like the stuff in the morning goes towards the people that are further along in the, the opportunity stage and then onwards to, towards the top. Um, and I think that, you know, that that's better because it takes more creativity. It takes more thinking for people that are, that are early, like later on in the process. Beyond that, I think a good way to like, there's so many tools that people use, you know, for email outreach or for sales or, or whatever. But I think the way that I think about the CRM is that's for people that you have that 
kind of Dunbar's number thing with, right? Once you have a real conversation with them, then that's when you don't want to over-automate to those people again. It doesn't mean they can't be on your newsletter or they can't get automations. You you have to be care- more careful with it at that point. So that's where you know they leave sales engagement platform X and go into CRM land. That, that, I might have lost your question a little bit, but that's a, a few things that come to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, interesting. I was just um, you know thinking back to two things that, that came to mind. Uh, there was a tweet recently by a guy a chap called Dickie Bush, who mentioned that he just you know. You, you talk about sort of low tech ways to keep track of things. Um, he just keeps a simple note in his phone to keep the track of everybody he meets, uh, baristas, waiters, gym staff, random people at WeWork. And the shock on their face when they greet them by their name is, is always amazing. Yeah. Get one if you're, if you're not good with names. And it's funny because like that sort of system is probably more powerful than nine, you know, most of the marketing automation that's being <laughs> used by people that they just aren't as disciplined with it. Right. So yeah. um, that's, that's, yeah, that's super interesting. And there is, it also reminds me of uh, one of my favorite comments on Hacker News, uh, where they were, people were discussing personal CRMs and uh, someone added a comment that said, uh, talked about his uncle who di- suddenly died, uh, said he was unbelievably caring, not just with his family, but to everyone he ever met. Uh, his funeral was jam-packed with everyone from homeless people to executives of multi-billion dollar companies. Um, he says, you know, I always thought that his ability to have always have you and whatever you had last talked about with him on his mind at any moment was some kind of supernatural gift. They were surprised to find out at his funeral that he actually kept an Excel spreadsheet of everyone he met and what they needed and what they were going through. And he reviewed that constantly. <laughs> finishes with it didn't lessen his genuine love for everyone it just let him be a little bit more superhuman yeah yeah that's and that's that's also just goes to show the power of, of excel at the end of the day <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely um one other thing that I'm, I'm i was kind of curious about uh that i saw um you mentioned was that on your website, you mentioned that you, um, and say, you know, you've mentioned that you went down the route of exploring these complex funnels and complex, you know, these complex strategies, basically. But what you've actually found that without trying too hard, even just using one channel like email, use one touch per point per prospect in a lot of cases. And that really threw me because I was like, wait a minute. I've heard so many people say that you know, you should like add people on LinkedIn and then ping them on email and then, and then they'll, they'll never forget you and things like that. It's interesting to see someone say, actually that multi-channel approach eh, might want to back off a little bit there. Yeah. It's, so in for the record, I'm not saying we never do any follow-ups or we never mm. use other touch points. Um, you know, we, we have funnels where we will we'll contact somebody another way, but I think conceptually, yeah, we're, we're kind of think about it. Like you may have, there is a situation where maybe somebody just doesn't see your message and then they need a bump. Right. But after a certain point, which probably is like after the second or third touch, you're not going to convince somebody to take a call with you. that doesn't want to take a call with you if you didn't come correct to begin with. Right. So our whole thinking is like, why not, spend all the time that you're wasting trying to optimize a complex funnel and front load that work into identifying the people that are already going to be likely to talk to you and to, you know, an equal extent, 
writing the copy that is tasteful and con- compelling at the beginning instead of having to chase them around at the end. Because, And then there's all sorts of other technical issues with that now where it's like a lot of the times you see people over-optimizing for the wrong thing or they're optimizing for one metric at the expense of everything else, right? So they're trying to get um, as many meetings booked as possible. And they're like, if we get more meetings, if we do this, that, and the third, but then maybe you're also kind of offending people or annoying them. Maybe you could have gotten even more meetings if you just had fewer touch points, but you put more work into the customization. It becomes like this weird equation that isn't always clear. Um, the other thing is like most of our of our clients, their total addressable markets aren't massive, right? They might be contacting like, I don't know, 10,000 companies, which sounds like a lot, but it's not that many at the end of the day. So it's like, you might as well put a little more work on just getting that initial agreement instead of like this long funnel of just hitting people up and spamming them and that kind of thing. Plus it's gotten more expensive to do that. You know, am I, even if it did work, which, which it can, I'm sure it's harder to get the data right because nobody picks up their phone. Uh, deliverability is a problem. If you piss off too many people, then your deliverability is affected as people that have done this know um, and onwards from there. So not, not throwing out the persistence angle, but just like adjusting the dial a little bit. Yeah. That definitely jives with uh you know, my sentiment that the spray and pray approach is probably used too much, especially in, you know, sort of prospecting world. And with a small, if you're targeting, you know, relatively small industry, reputation is so important. And if, if you become known as the guy who's like, oh, do you know these guys? Oh, yeah, they, they spam me like heck, you know, you don't want to be in that position, do you? Yeah, you don't want to be that that guy or that company. At the same time, like, there has to be some openness to breaking eggs, right? Because like otherwise you won't you won't launch on anything ever. So it depends on your temperament. If you are too scared to contact your market at all, then you've kind of got to be open to breaking an egg. But there's also a lot of people breaking way too many eggs when they could be making an omelet more often, I guess. The metaphor is probably broken, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. One one sort of email follow-up template I I quite like is where you know you say Hey, you know, I get out. You're busy. No worries. But in case you're open to having a chat, you know, would love to. Would still love to have a chat. You know, whatever it may be. So that way, you give people an out. You know, or or you say, hey, you know, if you don't want me to follow up anymore, that's that's totally cool. Yeah, yeah. I think I think versions of that can work. Um, but I think the main thing is just you know, just being able to de-risk that conversation, and some and that can happen different ways. You know, and the way we found to work is through a commonality that people share where there's like, there's a social, I think the weird, like sort of subconscious thing that happens is that if somebody shares a strong personal commonality with you and you agree to take the call, one of the reasons you agree to take the call is that, you know, there's a social cost to them being a pain in the ass or obnoxious or wasting your time. So you're more likely to take it because you're like, well, I'll probably meet this person again. There's also social costs to you not taking the call because you might meet that person again. So that's another argument for it. Mm, yeah okay fair enough and and i'm curious you know you've so you've worked with like tons of clients haven't you Uh, i'm curious if there are any particular kind of experiences that really stuck with you uh in terms of maybe it was the process you followed or or something that was kind of unexpected about what it was like uh running you know helping them run their campaigns and and use your your services yeah, um, I, I think that there's there's probably a few of them. Um, one of our proudest wins was just helping uh, this agency in Chicago scale up a lot and just like win win a lot more business because 
mo- like most of our clients, like they were doing really great work, but most of it was from referrals and just reactive business and that kind of thing. And um, I think when you're in that situation, it's kind of vulnerable because there's like a lot of consultants, a lot of people like me yelling and saying like, Hey, you should do this. You should do that. But in this case, um, we were able to make it work in a way that kind of like gelled with their processes a lot. And they were also, I think the other ancillary benefit was like, we were able to help them build out a sales process and like really like get a lot more data so that they could, you know, eventually, so she could get out of that sales seat and that kind of thing. But to answer your question, I think the one of the, the more surprising elements is like one of the things that worked best in the course of that campaign was just going local, was literally just saying like, we're in your backyard and we should talk. And this was Chicago, um, which is not a small city and that that worked really well. Uh, and so th- there's there's a lot of things like that. I think another thing that continues to surprise me is just like how long owners and partners, even in like organizations with dozens dozens of employees, will go with themselves in the sales seat, you know, and continuing to like kind of hold on to those reins really tight, as opposed to taking steps to get out of it, right, and, and graduate to like owning an, uh, an asset basically and getting somebody else into that role. It's not easy, but plenty of companies do it all the time. And, you know, it's, it's definitely doable. So, but yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's lots of surprises all the time, especially like in the agency world. Yeah. And I'm curious for, for, you know, agency owners that do find them in that posi- themselves in that position where they're holding on to all the reins. What are like, what are some of the best things to look at handing off the reins first? Yeah, I, I think that there's there's different ways to do it, but I think there's kind of a good order of operations, which is like, well, first get get yourself out of operations. Like if you know if you're small, if it's just you or a few people, um, it's more it's it becomes easier to get yourself out of the fulfillment seat than the sales seat, right? It's not um, by any means impossible to get out of the sales seat, but it is harder. So that's the first thing, and then from there, um, I think it's the next order of operations is figuring out demand, right? So figuring out the top of the funnel. Companies like ours can help, um, or if you do it yourself, you know, making sure that you have a repeatable process for getting in leads and getting in prospects and that kind of thing um, that exists without you. And then step three is getting that that closer into the seat. I think where people get it wrong a lot, and we hear this all the time, is like, I tried to hire a salesperson and it didn't work out, and I wasted all this money and I failed at it three times. And it's usually because when we dig into things. That they hire the salesperson and they're like, great, you figure it out. And they're like, Here, here's our deck. Like, you go out there and close us some business. Very rarely works because that person probably comes from a company that has existing systems and they were like, they were like this, you know, conduit. Uh, sorry for the talk, uh, get, getting the leads and closing deals and all that sort of thing. So I think once you have those building blocks in place, then it comes time to hire that like six figure closer role and get them into that, that seat, basically. Yeah, excellent. Love that. Well, Dan, this has been uh, this has been a great chat. Great to have you on. For people interested in finding out more about yourself, sales schema, um, I believe you have a book uh, which might be worth mentioning as well. I'll shamelessly put it in front of the screen, but anyway, uh, it's relationship sales at scale. Uh, it's on Amazon, and if you want to get the first chapter for free or check it out, um, or just have a memorable link to reach it on Amazon, it's just saleschema.com/slash rsas as in relationship sales at scale. Awesome. Great. Thanks, Dan. John, thank you so much. This is fun. Awesome.
Hey, thanks for listening. As always, we'd like to bring you guests that are at the forefront of the independent and boutique consulting industry. And we're also looking for recommendations. So if you know someone that you believe would be a good fit as a guest, please do send them my way, which you can do by simply emailing me at jbs at leadersofconsulting.com.